0: Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.
1: Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis.
2: And my wife is sick of watching basketball.
1: (laughs) Well, I have been dreading this since Saturday, when uh, my beloved University of Virginia Cavaliers got knocked out in the first round of the NCAA tournament by your wife's alma mater. (laughs) Yep, go (laughs) Bobcats! I'm just ready. I'm ready. I'm ready for all the all the hate you can give me.
2: And I, on the other hand, am feeling 101 years young, like my good friend Sister Jean. Um, but that—that's skipping ahead a little bit. So uh, it, it, suffice to say, it's—it's—it's it's, it's good to be with you.
1: Yes. No. And I, I, you know, because I'm a big person, I am now rooting for the underdogs. That is Loyola Chicago, who did an amazing thing um, on Sunday when they took down. An- Pretty good team.
2: <laughs> appreciate it. Appreciate it. Um, but who are we talking to this week? Before we get to more, there's a little bit more basketball yeah. talk coming. I'm so sorry, everyone.
1: Uh this week we are talking to Father Casey Cole. Father Cole is a Franciscan priest and the creator of an extremely popular blog and YouTube channel called Breaking the Habit.
2: That's right. And Father Casey really has an impressive uh ministry where he is making videos that are that are both very engaging they're 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 well made but they also the, the way he approaches topics are are really inviting both for people who are you know Catholic and looking for some some Catholic approaches to things um but he's also got this audience that reaches far beyond that so we talk a little bit to Father Casey about his general approach to doing ministry on the internet um especially as a younger vowed religious in today's world
1: yeah so if the toxicity of some of what you find on Catholic YouTube and Twitter has has turned you off. Uh, you definitely want to stick around for this conversation and check out his YouTube channel, Breaking the Habit. But first, we have a few words about our sponsor this week.
2: Ashley, did you know that some of the world's first written records weren't love poems or epic tales, but they were basically just receipts from merchants who wanted to keep track of how much they'd sold?
1: I did not know that, but as the daughter of two accountants, that makes sense. It's an essential service.
2: Well, and, the, you know, it, it's funny because the, it's crazy how these things tell so much about the world that the people lived in, in the time that things like the Bible were composed. And um, that's just one of a few fascinating facts that we've learned since watching the history and archaeology of the Bible available now on The Great Courses Plus.
1: And this course is brought to you by the professor... Jean Pierre Isbouts, who is a National Geographic historian and an award-winning filmmaker and author, so you can tell from that biography that he's an engaging, excellent speaker, um, and he gives a, a balanced view of of the the history and archaeology of the Bible.
2: No, and this was really great because I, I I did a theology degree at Loyola Chicago, and and some of my favorite classes were some of these like theology adjacent things, right, where you're learning sort of about the way that. I don't know, the quote-unquote, the real world interacts with some of these headier topics. And this was just a perfect entree into that. And I don't know, it makes me remember how much I, I love learning and getting really deep into some of this stuff. Uh, and, and with The Great Courses Plus, there's so many opportunities to do that, whether you're a theology nerd or not, you know whether you're looking to speak a new language, you, you want to learn how to play chess, maybe you want to get into wine or, or, or beer, or maybe even bread baking. That's all available and so much more. And great news for our listeners.
1: Yes. If you want to try The Great Courses Plus for yourself and get a free month of unlimited access, sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Jesuitical. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Jesuitical. Sign up and get a free month of unlimited access. And now we've got Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach?
2: As I said at the top of the show, uh, feeling great because Loyola University of Chicago is back in the Sweet 16. Um, and while we could talk about that, what we really want to focus in on here is the most Catholic part of this news, which is that Sister Jean is back in wall-to-wall coverage across America.
1: Yes. And the great news is Sister Jean has already gotten her two shots of the vaccine, so she is help and back in the bubble at Indianapolis, where she is cheering on and praying for the Ramblers. So it's hard to see how they could lose.
2: Yes. And if you've been hiding under a rock or you hate sports ball a lot, um, Sister Jean is the 101-year-old chaplain for Loyola's men's basketball team. She's been there since 1994. Um, and as someone that I I knew while I was a student and a lad at Loyola University <laughs> Chicago, she really is just a wonderful person. She gets a lot of coverage for her, um, being this like very cute old nun, but she really is just like a true minister of the gospel. And I don't think people see that side of her enough. Um, Like when I was there, she would invite me and students over to her apartment for like a weekly prayer night, and she was passing out student papers to students waiting for the for the bus. I mean, she was everywhere. Well into her nineties.
1: Yes, and while I have no doubt that she's a very holy woman, that does not mean she is not picking teams in this tournament, which you can tell from her pregame prayer before Loyola upset the number one seed Illinois. Zach, I will let you share her words
2: (laughs) as we play the Fighting Illinois. We ask for special help to overcome this team and get a great win. We hope to score early and make our opponents nervous, Sister Jean said during her prayer. Quote, we have a great opportunity to convert rebounds as this team makes about 50% of its layups and 30% of its three points. Our defense can take care of that. So, end quote, Sister Jean is clearly not just a great chaplain, but who who else do you know that can throw a a scouting report into a pregame prayer? um so look out look out world
1: yeah what's next for Loyola Who who's next
2: they are playing the Oregon State Beavers this weekend um and I don't I, I don't I don't have a doubt um they're making it far so um thank you Sister Jean uh love you hope to uh talk to you soon
1: and thank you listeners for indulging Zach on this story
2: <laughs> I, look if people are too tired of Sister Jean coverage then I I don't know what to I don't know what to say to them
1: what's our next story, Ashley? So, on Wednesday of this week, Pope Francis named Juan Carlos Cruz, a Chilean sex abuse survivor and advocate for uh, abuse victims, to the Pontifical Council for the Protection of Minors, which is the panel that advises Pope Francis on the best ways to protect minors and vulnerable people in the church.
2: And if that name sounds familiar, that's because Juan Carlos Appeared on Jesuitical back in 2018. And we wanted to bring this news, um, this appointment. It's significant for a couple of reasons. First, Juan Carlos has been a tireless advocate for justice and for abuse victims. Um, he he's not been afraid to challenge Francis directly um, when the Pope had dismissed abuse claims made by Juan Carlos and other victims in Chile.
1: Right. So that's what we talked to Juan Carlos about back in 2018. Um, And he told us how he was able to change the Pope's mind. Uh, The Pope was initially uh, skeptical of abuse allegations against this very popular priest in Chile. Um, And Juan Carlos uh, just, you know, kept going at it and eventually met with Pope Francis along with other abuse victims. And that ultimately led to all 34 Chilean bishops handing in their resignation to the pope uh, a, a few of which he has um accepted
2: right and well, you know having outspoken members who aren't afraid to challenge church officials on 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 stuff like this is is such an important part of healing and accountability and moving forward from a problem that still still has a lot of work to be done
1: right um, but we wanted to bring a second reason why this appointment might take on extra significance at this specific time. Uh, it comes in the wake of the controversy surrounding the statement from the Vatican banning priests from giving blessings to same-sex couples. Uh, we talked about this story last week, um, and we talked about, you know, the the hurt that this caused many in the LGBT Catholic community when it came out. and that And the fallout is still happening.
2: That's right. And— Juan Carlos Cruz is gay and was one of the many LGBT Catholics who expressed hurt and anger in the wake of that statement. Um, He said, quote, I know church officials cannot change overnight, but I do want to hear what the Pope said to me, which is, God made you like this. God loves you like this. This is the message we should all be hearing.
1: Right. So, So, I think that gets at a little bit of, um, Part of part of the hurt is the the kind of whiplash that the change from Pope Francis's pastoral approach to the more legalistic and sharp language of the Vatican document, um, which which Juan Carlos Cruz said you know it felt like a sword to your heart. Um, so I think you know this appointment does not well for one thing after. Uh, Juan Carlos made those comments, he, he said he hoped he would have the opportunity to talk about the statement with Pope Francis. And we don't know if that conversation has happened, but this appointment did happen in the wake of that, even even after Juan Carlos criticized what was coming out of the Vatican.
2: Right. And, you know, Francis has shown that he is, that his door is open and he is willing to listen.
1: Right. So now stick around for our conversation with Father Casey Cole. Joining us from Macon, Georgia, is Father Casey Cole. Father Casey is a Franciscan priest and the creator of the extremely popular blog and YouTube channel, Breaking the Habit. Welcome to Jesuitical, Father.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: Thanks for being here.
1: It's such a treat to have someone on video. <laughs>
2: I know, we're, we're so used to doing audio only that, oh, sure. uh, yeah, no this it's, it's, it, is a, it is a fun treat. Um, I don't think I'm made for YouTube. My people tell me I have a voice for radio, <laughs> which uh, we all have different talents. I, Yeah,
1: I think that a face for radio,
2: (laughs) a face for radio. Yeah, that's right. That's what I meant. Not a voice for radio. Um, I want to start uh, just sort of grounding us in the moment where we're at. Um, You've been ordained a priest in
3: a pandemic longer than you were a priest pre pandemic. Is that correct? Yeah, I was ordained a priest in June of 2019. So I had uh, almost a year, maybe nine months as a quote unquote normal priest. And the rest has been more or less on lockdown.
2: What is this past year, um, so early on? Because I mean, I, I talk about with my wife sometimes, um, our first year of marriage was also um, basically the entire pandemic. I'm wondering what this year of, uh, has taught you about your own ministry as a priest.
3: Yeah, one thing that we're taught uh, as baptized Christians, but then on top of that as priests, is that we have a threefold ministry of priest, prophet, and king, just like Jesus did. And often priests focus very heavily on that priestly aspect, that we celebrate the sacraments, we offer prayers, we are the group leaders in, in that way. Um, but that doesn't mean that the other two aren't as important. They just don't get as much attention sometimes. And so, that prophetic role is incredibly important. That leadership role, very important in the community. And while we haven't been able to do that priestly aspect as much, that doesn't mean we can't be prophetic. And that's where I think my ministry has really been seamless where, all right, well, we shut down the church, but I just went to the studio and continued acting as a priest. I don't think that I'm you know, not being a priest right now. This is essential to what it means to be a priest.
2: Well, and I feel like you had a leg up on other other capital sure. P priests. When the um, studio becon- is already
3: in place, that helps. <laughs>
2: Yeah. Um, Did you find yourself, like, fielding lots of questions from uh, Brother Friars or other people in ministry about how to do this well?
3: Yeah. The difficulty is I have a bit of expertise in a very small window of knowledge. Um, And so, when people started asking me how to set up churches with cameras and microphones, I had no idea. It's a different sort of technology. I've never done a live stream before. So, the things that people wanted to do, I had to learn myself. But yeah, there were definitely some basic things of, here's how you set up a light. You probably want to buy a cheap microphone if you're going to do something in your office. Uh, but yeah, people look to me uh, almost immediately.
2: Well, and I think that the, the technical is almost the wrong thing to ask someone sure. like you in a certain sense, right? What what do you think is like the fundamental, I guess, mission thing that people don't understand about online ministry when be translating it from in-person ministry?
3: Yeah, I don't know if I could give a a fundamental thing. I think it requires a lot of patience um, and it requires you to kind of think a little differently. That's especially when you work on YouTube, but I imagine all the the platforms is it's not necessarily the content that is going to drive viewership. And I know that's really hard for people to get because you think, well, if I make great videos, people will watch them but that's often not the case. You have to, in some ways, game the system. You have to understand how the system works. And so people don't realize that about 80% of your views come from YouTube suggesting it to people. So you really have to be in with YouTube and create things that they'll want to show. So that means your thumbnail, it means your title, it means having the right pacing so you get a longer watch time. There's a whole kind of science to it that uh, is frustrating because you'll create really, really great, meaningful things, but if no one clicks on it, then no one will see it at all.
1: How do you balance that? Because this is something Zach and I, I think, struggle with um, as content creators and like you know, creating that really mission critical work, but that might not play uh, play on on social media. Um, so how do you how do you balance that?
3: Oh, yeah. No, it's important to remember what success is. And social media will tell you success is likes, subscribes, um, shares, things like that. And that is a measure of success in a sense. You know, if you're just working for five years and you've got 15 views, there might be something there to look into. But just because you have a lot of views doesn't mean you're successful. And so for me, it always comes down to a mission statement that I rewrite every year, that I remind myself, what am I about? And for me, it's to evangelize and catechize in the way of St. Francis um, to the, the life of the church, to get people more involved, to follow Jesus. And so it is not for my own popularity. It is not to create a revolution. It is not to support a particular political party, whatever it might be that you could slightly find yourself slipping into, and then you gauge yourself, you judge yourself based on what that mission was. Did more people qualitatively send me messages to say that they're more involved in church? Uh, Best compliment I can get is someone said that they're considering the Franciscans. That's happened a lot over the last couple of years where people didn't know who we were and they see that my life is actually not terrible. It's quite wonderful. And they say, I want to do that. I don't think you can get any more successful than that. I'm
2: wondering, you know, given the growth and success you've seen on digital platforms, if there's ever a point where you imagine yourself going from like a sort of mixed um, in-person on-the-ground ministry into fully online and what that might mean for your own vocation in life.
3: Yeah, I'm a big proponent of online ministry. I think that it is uh, a really important thing. It's not the way of the future. It's not even the way of the present. It's the way of the past. You know, most people have been doing this for a long time. It's just the church that's catching up. So connecting with people around the world, giving catechetical and evangelical information and uh, content is absolutely necessary. To say that I would do that full time, though, might kill me. Um, I didn't join the life of a friar to sit in front of a computer screen. I love being able to do it, but if that were my whole life, I think that I would run out of things to say pretty quickly. My life is lived primarily at a parish, at a number of schools, working with people, hearing confessions, celebrating Mass, getting in the kind of mess of people's lives, to really loving in the corporal works of mercy. If I didn't have those things, I honestly think that the online ministry would die. Not to say that other people can't do it. I know some people focus on this absolutely full-time. I just know that this my source of information, my source of inspiration comes from the outside world, which is so necessary.
1: I'm curious how your Franciscan charism um, influences your media ministry. It's not something, I don't know, I in my head, I don't uh, associate Franciscans with with, like, online work. <laughs> Think of, you know, more like direct service or working in the Holy Land. So I'm curious if, it, if there is a way that That your franciscan charism influences you in this work
3: it's funny it surprises some people particularly because of the poverty this image that we kind of live destitute lives and how can we afford a camera i we also (laughs) probably the medieval images of us being kind of portly and kind of doofuses and like oh the lovable friar how can you even turn on a camera i don't know if that's what people are thinking um i would say it fits perfectly in line with the mission of saint francis that i understand in that every era of our order, we have always been one that went to the, the marketplace. From the very beginning, we went to where people were and we learned to speak the language that they spoke. Whereas the Dominicans were preachers in a very theological, very um, dogmatic sense. They were fighting heresies. We went to the ordinary people and we spoke with humor and we spoke lowbrow things. We didn't just ordinary things and helping them see the beauty of the world. And so that meant at the beginning, going to the city streets, it meant using the printing press when that was invented. And today I think it means using media. Franciscan Media is a company that I've published two books with, and they were kind of on the forefront of using television many years ago. I think that that's really where we have to be is just where people are. I got a criticism from someone on, uh, I guess it was YouTube or Twitter today, saying I shouldn't be on, blah, 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 something like that. And I just said, well, this is where people are gathering. And yes, while Twitter might be a dumpster fire at times, if people are there, why wouldn't I want to be there shaping the conversation, offering direction, listening, uh, consoling? That's exactly where a Franciscan should be, bringing peace.
1: For your own channel, Breaking the Habit, I, I mean, I, obviously the title or the name is a play on words and the habits that friars wear, but I'm wondering if there's something deeper there about like habits of evangelization within the church that you were trying to break with with these videos. Is Was, was there something you saw the church doing that you um, kind of wanted to take on?
3: Not necessarily. It started as a blog right before I entered the Friars. It was uh, an image that I had of uh, wearing a glove playing baseball that you had to break it in, you had to mold it, you had to Mm -hmm. form it to fit your hand and your hand kind of had to adapt to the glove and putting on the habit was a way of life. I wanted to be changed, converted, uh, have uh, an experience of my life that was better because I was a follower of Christ. But there was also a sense that I was hoping to bring something to it. You know, I am an individual and God created me who I am, so what can I bring to the friars, to the church? Um, I'm not sure if I necessarily had the long view of social media when I started it, um, but I do think what I bring to social media is that putting on a new way of life. Something I talk about a lot of the videos is it's, it's not so much what you say, but how you say it, that old cliche. It's not necessarily the truths that you profess, but it's how you engage with your enemy. It's the example that you live. And I think that that is so fundamentally lost in some t- some places on social media where we get into dogmatic battles and say, you're wrong, you're an idiot, you're a heretic. Well, if the gospel that we're professing, if the truth that we believe in is love, and you fail to use love in your life and in your words, well, then you're kind of undermining yourself in your very speech, Um, so I, I do think it's connected to that, where it has to be that way of life first. You can't have anything to say unless you live it. Why do you think that is
2: the fundamental approach or disposition of a lot of Catholics that go online is to basically argue about some like doctrine, dogma? Who's a heretic? Who's not one? It's it's a fundamental like I need to go on and like either police or convince or, or or be challenged, even people who have an open mind are really going on there to try and engage in, in, in a very intellectual level with some of this stuff.
3: Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of reasons. I'm going to throw one out there that uh, I've experienced a lot in the last eight years, which is that I honestly think people want an enemy. I think people look for an enemy because it gives them a scapegoat to explain why things are not the way they should be. I think it makes them feel morally superior. Um, And so that's why I think that we see online so many people sharing things that are absolutely ridiculous, that if you were to step back, no one would believe this stuff. You think some of the political ads, you think some of the things attacking our church, people share them because it has a little bit of confirmation bias to it. it. It says kind of exactly what they want to believe because it confirms the fact that their enemy is the one who caused this, forgetting, of course, that it's completely irrational a lot of the times. It it just, it makes us feel better um, to have that person out there we can blame it on. And so, doctrine is a really easy, cut-and-dry way of saying yes or no. It's much more difficult to evaluate someone's work in the economy, one's work in the corporal works of mercy. But, you know, if you talk about the dogmas of the Trinity, you talk about the doctrines related to sexuality, man, cut-and-dry, I can tell you're a heretic, and I'm better for it.
1: Yeah, and in that way, we kind of reflect exactly what we see in, like, U.S. politics and the broader culture. Um, Seems like like we should have a bit of a higher standard than that.
3: (laughs) I would think Jesus would want us to have a higher standard,
1: yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, what do you do when you encounter someone, like, when someone wants you to be their enemy? What's your response?
2: We don't need to be hypothetical about this. I know this (laughs) was— Yeah. This is— (laughs) <laughs> this happens on the regular. Maybe we could, can we <laughs> yes. dive into a, 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 just a specific example. And I know this is not. I I don't want to give the impression this is even a, a modicum of what your channel only focuses on. Um, but you had a video that uh, went up uh, in the past couple months that was uh, abortion is not that important was that was the title and it was provocative. Uh, it,
3: what what did the main message of the video? If you could sum it up in thirty seconds. I think it's just what we were talking about, that um, unless you have love in your heart, it doesn't matter what you say. And the most important thing is following Jesus. It is living with that love. And so if you uh, are against abortion, but you do so by judging and condemning your enemy, by burning down an abortion center, by attacking people, whatever it might be, then you're losing your soul. And that was the thing for me was abortion is not that important because the most important thing is your soul. It's not so important that you'd be willing to turn away from Jesus. And so, in everything we do, politically, religiously, socially, it must conform to the way of the gospel.
2: And, you know, you followed up with a a, a reaction video a couple of days later that was
3: basically, well, that was a disaster. Yes. <laughs> what What did that disaster look like? Unfortunately, the the provocative nature of the title was all that many people saw. I wouldn't say most. Uh, the vast majority, I still had 75% of people like the video, but a good portion of the people saw the video and thought that I was supporting abortion. Um, it's a really difficult one to respond to because the very first line of the video says that abortion is bad. I say it multiple times. It is absolutely terrible. Unfortunately, that's what you're going to encounter sometimes, where people are going to not hear exactly what you're saying. It wasn't even a nuanced nuanced point, I don't think. Um, I think it might confirm what we said before, that people are looking for an enemy. So they're looking for that religious, that liberal person that's trying to undermine the church. And so I have to remind people all the time, I'm not your enemy. I'm on your side. I'm a disciple of Christ. I'm here to love and serve the Lord and one another. This is what my entire ministry is about, and what I'm saying here is precisely to love you, that this anger that you have is not becoming of a Christian, and we need to work on this together. Unfortunately, it was provocative in its nature to the extent that people just didn't want to see it, and I think that's why the second video was named... What a disaster, you know, that that was a disaster because it ultimately, it got me a lot of hits. It got me some subscribers, right? Oh, well. Um, But it didn't reach the people it should have reached. And and that, for me, is what we talked about, that success is not the numbers, it's not the notoriety. If I'm not changing hearts, then it becomes all about me, and that's not what I want to do.
1: How does the church change these Dynamics because you're certainly not the only one who has had a, you know, Twitter pile on um, for, you know, (laughs) for saying something that that might that is true that you you were saying something true and yet it still led to this to this whirlwind. Um, It's kind of depressing. And for a lot of people, I think it just it turns them off from the church. They see this and they're like, why would I want to be a part of this? you know, hateful institution where the insiders are fighting with each other. Um, how do we get past this?
3: I don't I don't want to come off depressing because the end, I think, will be very hopeful, but the start is going to sound a little bit negative. I look to Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun. I think what we're experiencing now is what they experienced in the Middle Ages, is what they experienced in Jesus' time. Um, I'm not sure if we ourselves are going to get over this. I'm not sure if I have a magic potion or a wand that I can wave that'll make everyone love each other. I think there will always be division in the church as long as we are human beings, Um, as long as God gives us free will, as long as the devil has even a tenth of an ounce of power over anything, there will be dissent. But we need to remember that Jesus is always here as well, that the Holy Spirit lives within us, that there will come a day when the, the Lord will separate the sheep and the goats, and so we can have hope for that. I think in the meantime, it's just a matter of remembering that when Jesus sent his disciples out, he told them to witness. And the word he used uh, is the same one we use for martyrdom, uh, that we're sent out to be martyrs and sometimes we're not going to be received well. Again, that's not necessarily the measure of success, whether people receive it well. Sometimes we just need to be a witness and we don't necessarily know what people are seeing. Sure, um, the people who I wanted to reach may not have gotten the message, but I can tell you I got hundreds if not thousands of messages sent from people saying, thank you so much. This is exactly what I wanted to see and I'm so happy to see how you handled it. I'm praying for you. And so sometimes it's the secondary, or tertiary people that get the message or see what you've done in response that can be very life changing. And sometimes you don't even get that feedback. Sometimes you really make a difference, and you have no idea.
2: You are uh, someone that works across generations. You, you've got a video about this. Um, you you are a a young priest that I pres- presume lives with both young and older friars. Um, you're in a school. You're in a parish. What are some of the main misconceptions or differences that you see in the church specifically um, between generations right now? Hmm.
3: Yeah, I think um, generations are often generalizations, and so it's difficult to say everyone in one is dealing with the same things. I I do think that we generally have a generational problem in our church that you know, the young people, so to speak, are the ones who want liturgy and they want to go back to the things of old and the older people want to live in the past and they like the social justice and things like that. For me, it's always a both end. I I think that there's a a lot of wisdom uh, that we often miss in our opponents, in our enemies, in those who are different from us. And it's certainly a problem in our church that we are in either or so often Um, and that we're so not Catholic. I mean, it's such a, a crazy thing to be Catholic and to say that it means one thing. Catholic means universal. And so, I always try to encourage people whenever they give opinions, it's often yes. Yeah, I, I think that the, the Latin Mass has a place in our church. And I think that uh, the, the, the Novus Ordo, the Ordinary Forum has a place in our church. And I think that social justice has a place in our church. And there's so many wonderful facets that we can get from this The only time that I really push back is when people become exclusive, when they say that one form is the only form, or that certain ways of living in the world are absolutely unacceptable. I I think that our church is bigger than that, and that's often where our generational problems come from is our inability to see what others are thinking. Um, I can give you an example uh, very close to me, which is The Habit. It's what I named the, the brand after, Breaking in the Habit. For me, the habit is an incredibly important uh, symbol of evangelization. It's an opportunity for me to go out into the world and be countercultural, yes, but also be a symbol of hope, to be a symbol of radical availability, that people can come to me at any time they see that, and I am there to serve them. For me, it's a great, great symbol. But for guys who grew up in a particular period, it's also a symbol of clericalism. It's a sign that you should serve me, that I'm more important. It's a sign of privilege in many ways. And so there are definitely some that see it as a way to separate you from people. And sometimes those things don't get articulated, and we just assume the other person is either lazy and they don't want to work with people, or um, they're, they're just all about themselves. They're so selfish. Neither of these things are true. There's some beautiful aspects that we can learn from both. And I think that's what intergenerational houses that are honest with each other can really provide the world. Is saying that your your experience is true, uh, we can learn
0: from that.
1: Yeah, your generosity in that video, I was really struck by, and I'm, wonder, I'm wondering, if, I don't know, it very much resonated with me as someone who appreciates that both and uh, approach. Um, I'm wondering, did did your older brothers in in your community, I don't know, were they convinced, or do they still look at these people and their clerics and you know shake their head?
3: It's an ongoing conversation for sure. Uh, I can't guarantee you that anyone in my community actually watched that video, but (laughs) in these conversations that we've had, I think people can generally tell when they get to know each other if someone's the the real deal or not. You know, they Mm -hmm. can see if you're genuine, if you're out to serve or you're out to be served. I think people have a pretty good sense of that. And so I haven't faced a whole lot of backlash from the friars. I think a lot of the friars share a very similar opinion that I do. And even those who don't, Once they get to know me a little bit, once they see the power they can have, um, are accepting that there can be different approaches to it. It's a difficult thing for sure because there's so much that goes into this. Symbols are packed full of meaning, and it doesn't mean the same thing for everyone. You know, there are obvious like ideological differences
2: that, in a general sense, that generations might have. Um, But I think one thing that is Major is just pure demographics. You are a young priest, and we are bombarded all the time with statistics about how few priests there are compared to back in the day, and what that means for ministry. But I, but I also think that, in a certain sense, all young Catholics are in in a similar boat. At least all you know, those of us, I mean, that are committed and practicing and trying to evangelize and um, build up the church, and, and that th- there are so many fewer of us. Do you feel any of that, any of that pressure as like, you are one of the last few remaining that's been willing to do something like this with your life?
3: (laughs) Yeah, there, there are some dark moments sometimes where I feel like I'm the one who's uh, been picked to turn the lights off at the end, you know, that I'll be the only one there. It is um, depressing at times, but I also think honestly, it is one of the main motivators for what I do. I have this image in my mind all the time that I say, you know, not on my watch. This is not going to be my fault. I'm going to do everything I possibly can to make sure that there will be people that come after me. And honestly, that's where Breaking in the Habit started with the blog. And then the first couple of videos were always kind of vocationally motivated. They they would talk about what my life was like trying to attract new people. I think it's been successful in that regard. There are a few friars that have joined specifically because of the ministry um, and many others who have been aided because of it. I don't think that we're at the end. I do think that religious orders go through cycles, and uh, we are certainly at the latter end of that cycle, and maybe this is our opportunity, maybe it's our great awakening to redefine ourselves a little bit. I know we're not great on change in the church, and I'm not talking about being fundamentally different, but we were really good for a long time at reading the signs of the times and adapting to it. I wonder, maybe we've become too comfortable in who we were, and uh, this could be that opportunity To really usher in a new growth, there are plenty of religious orders that are doing really well. Um, Why why can't we be that? And and I have many opinions on how we do that. I don't know if they're actually true, but that's what they are. Their opinions.
1: Yeah, well, to go back to an earlier the the why question, like. Why, why do this? Like, <laughs> you clearly have a lot of love for the Franciscans and for this Catholic church to, you know, <laughs> want to, you know, keep it around for the next generation and, you know, forever after that. So, um, you have a video of the 50 things you love about Catholicism. Maybe you could <laughs> distill that down to, <laughs> to what it is you so love about about the church.
3: Yeah, I think we touched a little bit. I love the both ends. I, I love the inclusivity of it, the universal nature, but I love the depth of it. Never have I had a question that the church doesn't at least have some secondary answer for. It's never surface level. I'm always amazed when I have a question of morality, a question of theology, and I can find reams and reams and reams of paper on it, that there have been theologians for centuries talking about it. There's something that reminds me of the great mystery of God when I see the Catholic Church, that there's something so vast to it that you'll never get all of it. And for me, it's not so much that, you know, it's the one true church that some might say that's, you know, some would say all other non-Catholics are going to hell or any sort of exclusive thing like that. Um, I do think that our church is the most true. I do think that we have that foundation from Christ, and that's so important. But it's really that the church continues to live on, it's not just our history, but it continues to be that active force uh, that has Christ in it. We are bringing Christ to the world. We are that sacrament of salvation. What a beautiful image that we as the church can be a vehicle for Christ in the world. And then how many wonderful expressions that can have, our liturgies, our, our poetry, our art. It's it just mind-boggling, and it really touches the soul. Father Casey, thank you so
2: much for your ministry. Um, I, it's so good to see. Um, I, I mean that with all genuine sincerity. Um, so thank you for being, being willing to share your vocation in your life and your love for the faith on a place like YouTube, um, and this podcast, (laughs) we'd have one final question for you. Um, we ask all our guests this, if you could canonize one person living or dead, Catholic or not fictional or real, who would it be and why? Franciscan
3: or Jesuit also is a proper <laughs> distinction. Sure, sure, sure. Um, yeah, we've we've got enough Franciscans. I don't know if we need any more. We're starting to get a little, our humility is fading. You know, we've got too many. Um, for the longest time, it was Oscar uh, Romero. I was a big uh, proponent of his since I learned about him in college. He has just always been my favorite saint, even before he was saint. I guess maybe I need a new cause, mm-hmm. Um Gosh, I wish C.S. Lewis was a Catholic. Can we canonize a non-Catholic? Yeah, that's that's in the rules of this show anyway. Okay, great. Yeah, no, he has always been an inspiration. I would say Dorothy Day, but I know that would just annoy her because she never wanted to be a saint. (laughs) But, you know, if I could convince her that's okay, I'd pick her as well. All right. Well,
2: well we're going to mark you down for C.S. Lewis because Do- Dorothy Day's got a lot of votes on the show already. <laughs> I assume so. so. Yeah, I mean, C.S. <laughs> Lewis, major
3: influence in my life. Is there a favorite uh, C.S. Lewis work of yours? People love uh, mere, mere Christianity. I think it's fine. I don't love it. For me, <laughs> *Screw Tape Letters, fantastic. And The Great Divorce, uh, incredible. Amen. All right. Well, the blog and
2: the YouTube channel is Breaking the Habit. Uh, It's very easy to find. Um, Father Casey, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: now we've got some housekeeping what's going on this week zach
2: so just wanted to thank all the members of our patreon community again um including uh the 15 or so of you that signed up for our uh, ncaa march madness bracket challenge um while ashley and i are in uh 10th and 6th place um <laughs> respectively. There are some pretty talented people in in this group who, uh, I'm just going to read off a couple of the top three. Um, Ray Walton's got, um, he's in the top 99th percentile of all brackets everywhere. Um, he's in first and Nick Frege is right behind him, um, in the 97th percentile. And, um, someone who professes not to know a lot about sports themselves, Tish Oxenreiter, um, she's, she's holding her own with third place. So, um, congratulations to you. We'll, we'll see how it everything shakes out in the end, but uh, you're, you're certainly are doing better than Ashley and I, unless, <laughs> unless Loyola goes all the way, in which case everybody's in trouble. So thank you to, thank you to all our Patreon supporters. If you want to join them, you can visit patreon.com slash America media to support the show on the Patreon community.
1: All right, now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God in our lives this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach?
2: I have a desolation this week, and I was talking to Father Eric, and I was saying that I'm I'm sort of tired of there being so much volatility in my prayer life is what it feels like lately, where sometimes it's Um, things are really clear and connection feels strong. And other times it feels just like nothing is happening and there's just like radio silence. And that has felt like, I get that's part of life, but it's just a pandemic where time is all collapsed. It just feels sort of like it's happening with greater frequency back and forth. Um, and I was saying like the thing I, I feel like I, I I need is a, a, a retreat, which is a little ridiculous because, um, this is in some ways all been a very long retreat, but it's been sort of a fake one. So it's impossible to actually take time and focus on stuff. And I thought I was just going to be told, yeah, that's great. Great spiritual works. That retreat will be great. (laughs) Instead what I got was Eric said, well, it sounds like sometimes it's the connections there. Sometimes it's not. Are you giving yourself the space and time to have that conversation with God? And the honest answer to that is sometimes yes. And sometimes no. And he's like, well, it sounds like you kind of have to like build this into your routine some, because there seems to be some correlation with when you're doing the work, it's working. And when you're not, it's not, which is of course the answer I did not want to hear. I was very happy to blame this on (laughs) lack of, lack of vacation or time or space or retreat. And it's much easier to say, yes, I'll go on a retreat when all this is done. Um, So this was a little bit of an eat your vegetables kind of moment, Um, but Something I'm excited to take the prayer is that you know, with little little kids, the way we get them to eat their vegetables sometimes is to wrap them in cheese or something, a ranch. Or <laughs> so we're thinking about, like you know, what are the? I, I hate routines. I'm very bad at routines. So I, I was encouraged to bring to prayer a little bit. You know, what's the ranch dressing? What's the cheese that you can wrap your vegetables <laughs> in um, to make this a little bit easier for you? So that was my desolation nice. this week: is being told I'm I'm not actually a spiritual master yet.
1: Yeah. Well, as someone who loves vegetables, I don't know why Father Sundrop hasn't just told me that prayer is like vegetables. I would <laughs> be all over it. Just, uh,
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I think it works different for different people, but uh, we'll see. Oh, man. What do you got this week?
1: I also have a desolation. Um, I don't know. This feels like very un- unoriginal to say, uh, but, you know, it's been a year of, you know, bad news and a week of, Really bad news in our country um, uh, with the shootings in Atlanta and Boulder. And whenever something like this happens, I find myself um, really like beating myself up for not feeling more about it. Um, Like, there have been times in my life where I feel like, you know, tragedy in other people's lives has actually like deeply affected me and made, you know, like I really feel it. And then there are times where it's just like, There's nothing. And then the voice I sit with in those times is the evil spirit saying like, you're a terrible, unloving person. You don't care about this news. Like, why isn't this affecting you? Um, and like, like, I don't know. And so it's the voice that tells me like, you know, your alternatives are like, you know, being someone who cries when you hear the news or someone who's just like a completely selfish, insular person who only cares about yourself and your friends and your family. Um, which I know. And Eric Soundrop was like, or Father Soundrop was like, you know, are those the only alternatives? And I was like, well, probably not. And he's like, whenever you get that, well, probably not voice. It's like you admitting that you <laughs> that the evil spirit isn't the only way. I know that voice. <laughs> I was just like, okay. <laughs> um, so, but like, and, you know, I was just talking to him about it and he's like that, like when you're, when you listen to that voice, does it, does it open anything up for you? Does it? give you an, any idea that there's hope or a different way. And the answer is no. Um, but that is where I've found myself recently. Um, whenever there's been bad news and there's been a lot of bad news. So just like, yeah, you know, the first step recognizing the desolation and, um, being honest about it. So that's kind of where I was this week.
2: It is hard. And as you said, not unoriginal, but it, it does not mean I'd, I don't think it is profound and relatable. So, mm. all right. Thanks, thank you for that. Uh, let's get out of here. Yep.
1: Okay, Jesuitical is produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcast and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.